0: This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3 FM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with political philosopher and theorist Jessica White. Jessica is based at the University of New South Wales and joined me via Skype to discuss the rise of neoliberalism and how 20th century neoliberals remade and hijacked human rights. We explore all of these themes from her critically acclaimed book, The Morals of the Market, Human Rights and the Rise of Neoliberalism. I'm really delighted that I'm going to be speaking with my next guest. She is Dr Jessica White, an Associate Professor in the School of Humanities and Languages and also at the School of Law at the University of New South Wales. Jessica is also an Australian Research Council DECRA Fellow, which is a really wonderful and important fellowship to support scholars who are really leading in their field and Jessica certainly is leading in in this area and has written a just beautiful and fantastic book it's so well written and researched and some really original thinking as I mentioned it's called the morals of the market human rights and the rise of neoliberalism and it was put out by verso books which is a UK based publishing company putting out some really great radical ideas and Jessica's is among them. So I'm really delighted that Jessica will be joining me now via Skype to talk all about um, this book and the ideas behind it, and I welcome Jessica now. Hi there. Hi. Thanks so much for joining us today.
1: Thanks for having me on the show.
0: Now, I... um, I think it was about January and we were having the bushfires and um, I was anxiously looking at the news and on Twitter to kind of keep track of what was going on and an article in The Jacobin came up and it was about your book and uh, the title read When Neoliberalism Hijacked Human Rights Um, and it was a review of your book and it just really caught my attention and it sounded like a fascinating subject and it brought together two concepts that I hadn't really considered um, as being intertwined. And so first up, I wanted to ask you, how did you, um, as a researcher and as an academic, someone who's thinking about these issues, get to a point where you thought there's a story here, there's something more to neoliberalism and human rights and and how they've, um, I guess, been connected
1: over the last century? Well, I was really struck by the fact that When we think about neoliberalism and human rights, there's a sort of general tendency to assume that these are really contradictory and almost opposite phenomena. We often hear that neoliberalism is simply about free markets, entrenching international and national inequalities, um, whereas human rights is about human equality, it's about anti-discrimination, it's about defending individuals against state violence But I was sort of struck by the fact that in historical terms, both these movements really came to prominence around the same time, so from the late 1970s. And I was dissatisfied with some of the existing scholarship, which really framed this just as a kind of a historical coincidence. So I decided that it was worth looking in a lot more detail into what the historical relationship was between human rights and neoliberalism and particularly looking at how major neoliberal thinkers talked about human rights throughout the 20th century.
0: Yes, and with neoliberalism, one of the early things that you highlight in this book is that it is not an exclusively economic doctrine. So if it isn't exclusively about
1: economics, what is neoliberalism? Yeah, look, well, that's a big question and I think it's a really important one because a sort of standard argument or definition, I guess, would be that neoliberalism is about free markets and it's about extending economic logics to all areas of life. Now, there's some truth in this, but when I started looking at A bunch of thinkers who were the pioneers of neoliberalism, and this was a bunch of people like Friedrich Hayek, uh, Ludwig von Mises, a bunch of German economists, also known as the auto liberals, and a range of people who started organising from the mid 20th century and wanted to revive liberalism. What you saw in them is that they were making not just economic arguments, but they were making very distinctly moral arguments. And not only were they making moral arguments, but they were arguing that what they called a free society or a liberal society could only survive if it institutionalized a particular form of morality. So I got very interested in these arguments that neoliberal thinkers were making about morals and political organization. And I found that human rights actually played quite a significant role there.
0: Yes. And so, as you've said there, a lot of people would think that, that neoliberalism is about the kind of invisible hand of the market and it's not discriminatory and it just does whatever um, the market thinks is best. And therefore, it has this amoral quality. It's sitting at a, a separate plane and it's not tarnished with the biases of humans, but that's clearly not the case. So in terms of the moral dimension that emerged at the beginning of this formulation of neoliberalism, what was it? What what were those moral elements that these really men uh, deemed to be important? Um, and I'm thinking about that first meeting that you speak of where they got together in, I think it was 1947, to kind of think about liberalism in a different way?
1: Yeah, well, I think one of the things that's really important about what neoliberalism was as a project is to think about that time when it was formulated, so from 1947, um, although some of these people had been organising and thinking for a couple of decades before that, but really neoliberalism emerged in a context of widespread social democracy, economic planning, a period in which many people believed that the sort of laissez faire or free market ideas. Of a previous liberalism had been completely discredited and so the neoliberals were very conscious that they couldn't just assert these ideas of the invisible hand of the market because in a context where people for instance had been through the massive unemployment and dislocation of the great depression the argument that the invisible hand of the market was just going to sort everything out didn't really have a lot of purchase So what they started doing was thinking about what the moral and the legal and institutional conditions were that would enable a liberal market order to thrive. And they really identified the question of morality. And what they believed, and Friedrich Hayek was particularly um, concerned with this point, is that essentially a sort of individualist morality which enabled people to pursue their own goals and to tolerate a very high level of inequality and to accept social positions that essentially the market doled out was the essential complement of a free market order. And he had this uh, very striking, very disturbing argument, which was a sort of a racialized argument about the development of morality. So Hayek argued that humans had been used for millennia to living in small groups or in sort of tribal scenarios, as he put it. And that this had made us accustomed to forms of egalitarianism and to believing that we should together pursue common ends. And he believed that all this was threatening to a market order and that what a market order required was not egalitarianism, collective ends, forms of solidarity, but it required that individuals simply pursue their own ends and have faith that in doing so they'll bring greater benefits to the whole and so he went about trying to promote this kind of morality against what he saw as the sort of the rise again of this what he called repressed primordial instincts that he believed were leading to demands for socialism egalitarianism and welfare states
0: Indeed. And you also bring into the mix the idea that these neoliberals who essentially founded the version of neoliberalism we understand today, that they were deeply suspicious of the idea of the economy. So how were they, in what ways were they suspicious of that idea of the economy?
1: Yeah, well, this is one of the really counterintuitives things that I discovered when I really read these people closely because of how used we are to thinking of neoliberalism as the dominance of the economy. It was quite interesting and surprising to see that many of these early neoliberal thinkers, in fact, rejected the very idea of the economy. And they did this because they traced it back to the ancient Greek roots of economy in oikonomia or the management of an oikos, a household. And they believed that when we talked about an economy at the national level or at the world level, this smuggled in an idea that an economy was like a household, that it potentially had a single set of ends that its its members had duties to each other, at the very least duties to keep each other alive, and that it would be governed by a kind of norm of collective solidarity or sharing. And for them, this was a very dangerous assumption. And so they argued that you can't and you should not confuse an economy with a market because a market order is, in fact, not an economy oriented towards a single set of ends. It's a spontaneous order which is produced when individuals and families pursue their own particular ends through forms of entrepreneurial activity and market exchange.
0: And so when we're thinking about this development, a a focus on the market and what it can deliver and also neoliberalism, it might be helpful to refresh the memory of those and what really existed before 1947 and um, how that contrasts and then we can move further into into neoliberalism.
1: Well, the situations that the neoliberals were responding to, to a large extent, were welfare states, forms of economic planning, uh, the New Deal in the United States and in the case of human rights, which I think is really significant, they were looking at the development of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, and they were seeing that, as well as containing what various neoliberals talked about as the classic liberal rights of individual freedom, that it also included social and economic rights, so rights to medical care, rights to education. Now, these rights were not by any means perfectly realised, even in the... Western capitalist countries. But they certainly were not equally realised internationally. But nonetheless, the neoliberals saw this as a real threat. And they saw this as marking the fact that their own time, the time of the 40s, was a period of widespread collectivism, in their words, a time in which people expected that The state and society had obligations to citizens and particularly economic obligations to provide people with things like housing, medicine, decent employment. And they believed that this was a real uh, destruction of what was meant by the idea of right. So they really set themselves against this social and economic rights agenda.
0: Yes, it's interesting that a lot of people now probably would not think of human rights and see those as distinct categories or distinct priorities – in terms of the Declaration of Human Rights and the negotiations that were being undertaken, you do explore some of the discussions that were happening at the time and the different priorities of countries at the bargaining table. What was some of the to and fro uh, around human rights and those categories that you've mentioned around civil and political rights versus those social rights?
1: Yeah, well, there was a lot of conflict um- during the drafting of the declaration between those who thought that it should be limited to just a sort of a basic list of sort of liberal rights and those who believe that it should contain social and economic rights also. And interestingly, it tends to be assumed now that it was the sort of the Soviet Union and the, um, the so-called communist bloc that were supporting social and economic economic rights, and that the liberal states supported rights like anti-discrimination. But in fact, that's not true. It was, um, in many ways, the Soviet Union that was responsible for including anti-discrimination rights in the declaration, whereas many of the um, supposedly liberal states were quite worried about what these would mean for existing racial discrimination in their own societies and also for colonial rule. But there was certainly a big argument over social and economic rights. And interestingly, the neoliberals, and Hayek is a classic example here, assumed that the social and economic rights were the legacy of what he called the communism of the um, Bolshevik revolution of 1917 so he saw these rights as being something that would transform a liberal society into a very different form of society and he set about combating this along with the other members of the neoliberal Montpellier society And um,
0: in terms of colonialism and the fact that there were obviously a number of countries that were looking to ensure that they had economic rights and that potentially there would be a a global redistribution of resources and a kind of levelling of the playing field, where did these negotiations and the rise of neoliberalism leave nations that had been colonised by the major powers?
1: Yeah, well, that's an important question and it's one of the major strands of my book. So I spend a lot of time looking both at the arguments about colonialism during the drafting of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights where, you know, significant numbers of the world's population still lived under colonial rule and therefore didn't get to participate in the drafting of this uh, supposedly universal document. Um, And I follow those debates uh, through the human rights covenants of the sixties and then through post-colonial demands for a new international economic order, which was a demand for global economic redistribution to compensate for the exploitation of colonial rule. And I look at the way that the neoliberal thinkers responded to decolonisation and to these increasing demands from post-colonial societies and states. And one of the things that was really striking is that initially the neoliberals believed that it was possible that decolonisation could lead to a purely liberal market order. And what they thought was absolutely crucial is that societies that had formerly been colonised were prepared to just maintain their existing positions in an international division of labour. So essentially to continue to simply be exporters of raw materials and to continue all the unequal treaties that had been signed uh, with colonial powers and also to continue to allow foreign corporations to exploit their resources. Now, when it became clear that these societies were not necessarily prepared to do this and when uh, post-colonial states and leaders started demanding forms of economic redistribution, the neoliberal thinkers became very, very concerned and they started Focusing on ways that they could restrain post-colonial sovereignty, the way that they could try to ensure that the global market was in no way disturbed by the rise of political decolonisation.
0: And um, one of the interesting um, sentences which encapsulates what you're saying there is that, quote, if anti-imperialism in the colonies developed into anti-capitalism, Mies, as in Ludwig von Mies, and his fellow neoliberals believed it would be a catastrophe for all of humanity. And one of the common themes in this book um, that you've written is that you often mention that these neoliberals saw Social democracy and um, collective action, and other elements on a similar theme, to be really an existential threat to civilization as they conceived of it. Uh, and it often sounds really quite dramatic. Why did they see it not just as, I guess, being a negative in their eyes, but being a really critical threat, a,
1: a kind of visceral threat? Well, I guess it's important to recognise what they meant by civilization and I spend quite a bit of time on this in the book and essentially when they talk about civilization, they talk about the extension of an international market order. So they're drawing on the thought of various thinkers associated with the Scottish Enlightenment, so people like Adam Smith and Adam Ferguson, but they're also um, giving their own sort of uh, touch to this and basically for them... Uh, a civilized order is a market order it's also explicitly one which is marked by racial hierarchies so ludwig von mises says things like the people of the white race have a better sort of a superiority in cooperating through the market and so they had this idea that the development of civilization was coextensive and reliant on The extension of market relations. So this meant that whenever they saw existing market relations as threatened, they did, as you say, respond in this extremely dramatic sense where they framed this as an absolute catastrophe, the decline of civilization. And the consequence of that was that as much as they defended what they talked about as the Peaceful and civilising quality of market exchange that whenever they saw market relations as threatened, they were very prepared to support forms of widespread violence in order to consolidate those.
0: Market orders. Mm, that's really interesting. And it reminds me of the other contention that the neoliberals had, which is that their conception of society and the way the market would operate, um, they believed, would lead to a peaceful society with less conflict. So, what was the
1: reason for them thinking that that would be the outcome? Well, one of the arguments that I make in the book, and it goes together with this argument about neoliberalism not being simply an economic program, is that the neoliberals had this distinctive political argument for market relations, which they argued would lead to peace. And in making this argument, I I take up the argument of a great thinker, Albert Hirschman, in his book, The Passions and the Interests, where he identifies this argument what he calls a political argument for capitalism before its uh, before its triumph and he finds in figures like the baron de montesquieu this argument that market relations were supposedly relations of mutual interest and mutual need so they gave people an impetus to behave in sort of peaceful and mutually beneficial ways and so The argument that Hirschman traces is one whereby supposedly market relations would lead to replacing the violence of passionate warfare with sort of cool, mutually beneficial relations of commercial exchange. Now, of course, these earlier thinkers made these kind of arguments in a context of very violent and brutal colonialism and the slave trade. So they certainly weren't writing in a time of peaceful commerce. But Albert Hirschman believed that this argument for the pacifying virtue of commerce had really faded by the time of the Napoleonic Wars and the Industrial Revolution. And that by the 20th century, it wasn't possible for any thinker to really believe that commercial relations would lead to peace. But I showed that actually for the neoliberals this was a really central part of their argument for market relations. So they looked back on the wars of their time and particularly at the First World War and they argued that the reason that humanity had broken down into war is that people had replaced liberal commercial relations on an international level with collectivism and forms of welfare statism, and that the only way to secure international peace would be to reinstitute market relations. Now, of course, the the paradox or the contradiction of all this is that once they had committed themselves to this argument that commerce led to peace, they were prepared to support all forms of violence in order to make that commerce possible. So Ludwig von Mises liked to say that in the market itself there's no violence and no coercion, but then it add that the state uses its power to beat people into submission only for preventing actions that are destructive for the market order. So they are very happy to support forms of violence that were about beating people into submission if those people posed a threat to this supposedly peaceful commercial world order that they wanted to introduce.
0: And one of the interesting parts about this is the link in with social conservatism and the values of those and um, how that relates to the development of neoliberalism. What role did social conservatism play in, I guess, facilitating or making prominent uh, neoliberal thought
1: Well, one of the things that I wanted to do in the book was contest a sort of prominent argument, which assumes that neoliberals were amoral thinkers who made a sort of pragmatic reconciliation with social conservatives in order to get their agenda through. And this kind of argument comes up a lot in the US context, where you do have thinkers associated with the Chicago School of Economics, like Gary Becker, who were certainly not socially conservative, who argued, for instance, that all marriage should be replaced by short-term contracts between individuals of any gender. So the paradox or the puzzle in the US context has been to work out how it was that thinkers like Becker and other neoliberal Chicago school thinkers could ultimately make common cause with, with evangelicals and various forms of social conservative thought and practice. But what I want to show by going back to the 40s and by looking at um, European neoliberals rather than just the, those in the United States is that actually neoliberalism was a deeply conservative doctrine at its inception. So it saw itself as trying to hold back a revolt of those they called the masses and as trying to conserve a liberal order against the rise of welfareism, socialism, communism and later against the rise of anti-colonial movements and decolonisation. So I show that these early neoliberal thinkers were very committed to family values and to very... Uh, sort of clear gendered divisions of labour, and that they also had um, a very conservative account of institutions and a real opposition to what they talked about as rationalist attempts to act politically, to transform what in Hayek's words got euphemistically called historical accidents. So while they could recognise that there were forms of injustice, those created by the Transatlantic slave trade were a central example. Uh, They nonetheless said, but ultimately these are historical accidents which can't be corrected without potentially doing danger to these sort of grown spontaneous social orders.
0: Exactly. And so I'm just thinking about uh, neoliberalism and um, how it's evolved over time, and the fact that, as you've mentioned, the history of neoliberalism is not—it um, doesn't begin in the 1970s when many people would assume it had. But as we've said and been discussing, it is really beginning at the end of the 1940s, and so we see this kind of rise and rise of neoliberal thought and its pervasiveness through society. It almost became a doctrine that was part of life. It was. Um, not challenged by the majority. It's certainly not by the governments in power who benefited from the system in play, I'm interested in looking at how neoliberalism has affected human rights in recent history and um, you gave a a really poignant example of why what we're talking about and the historical development is still so very relevant to our present day society and the example I'm thinking of is around um, the Grenfell Tower fire that really um, took a number of lives in the UK. And it, it highlighted so beautifully the issue now at stake in terms of how human rights plays out and the different conceptions of it. So could you share with us that really um, interesting example and how it highlights your contention?
1: Yeah, well, this was something that um, happened tragically as I was uh, writing this book. And I was very struck and really quite horrified in many ways by the way that the language of human rights was used in that context. And the example that I use in the book is of um, the Conservative Party peer Daniel Finkelstein, who argued that after Jeremy Corbyn, the former leader of the Labor Party, argued that so-called land-banked houses, empty investment properties, should be requisitioned to house survivors of the Grenfell fire, Finkerstein argued that this was the reason that we needed human rights protection, to protect the human rights of these absent property owners when the will of the majority were against them. So here we saw human rights explicitly being used to um, protect private property rights, but also specifically to protect the rights of those who were seen as requiring protection precisely from the most marginalised people, from people who had lost their homes from people, many of whom were immigrants, who supposedly should have been the, the ultimate bearers of human rights. But you saw this language of human rights being weaponised precisely to deprive these people of any, any right to housing, of any kind of uh, security. Yes, well, one of
0: the elements of that, which it really does bring it home and it makes sense um, because it's not just confined to the UK, was this association of the human right to property and an individual's right to own property and protect their assets. And so that, to me, when I read it, I kind of was taken aback at how that could be seen as a really an essential human right in the context of the Grenfell fire um, that takes precedence over the homing of now homeless and very vulnerable people. How has that individual private citizen right to things like property played out in society in general? and, And has that um, in, in some cases, taken precedence over the other elements of human rights that we would think of, like a a right to shelter, a right to water, a right to food, all of those elements?
1: Look, I think absolutely it has. And I mean, one of the things that I show in the book is that in their early days of the sort of consolidation of neoliberalism at the level of major states so with the rise of Margaret Thatcher and Ronald in the UK and Ronald Reagan in the United States that both of them relied on an argument for human rights in order to defend privatization and also the projection of a particular neoliberal ideology across the globe. So Thatcher argued, for instance, in favour of uh, privatising council housing, that those countries that defend property rights also defend other human rights. So there was this use of human rights language in favour of a very individualising approach to the privatisation of public resources. But I think the perhaps more disturbing thing that I trace in the book is that this, what I call neoliberal human rights language, was not just influential on the right. So it would be easy to dismiss the likes of Thatcher or Reagan and to argue that their so-called concern about human rights was really pure cynicism and that really they were simply interested in the consolidation of wealth and resources amongst those who were already wealthy. But what I show is that many of the Ideas pioneered by neoliberal thinkers about human rights were also taken up by human rights NGOs from the late 70s and the early 80s. And that many of those NGOs therefore became complicit in various ways with the rise of neoliberalism.
0: You just went to the next topic, which I'm so glad that we can explore a bit more on. In terms of those non-governmental organisations, as you've said, they're not in the most part really very conservative um, and often they are quite progressive in their values. So how has that played out? That How have NGOs around the world used the language of human rights, the conception and the kind of formulation of human rights that the neoliberals have um, created and put forward and ha- what are the consequences?
1: Well, one of the arguments that I make in the book is that this key neoliberal innovation was to promote this idea that commercial society or civil society, as it was also called, is a realm of peaceful, mutually beneficial, non-coercive exchange between individuals, whereas politics is a sphere of violence and coercion and sort of Masses imposing themselves on others and I think that the outlines of that general conception were very influential on the human rights NGOs of the 70s and 80s, which tended to pit themselves against political power while Naturalizing the violence and the domination and the exploitation that took place in the economic sphere or in the realm of civil society but to give a specific example, one of the examples I look at in the book is of Médecins Sans Frontières. And um, in the mid-1980s, Medicine Sans Frontière in France, so the major branch, established an organisation that they called Liberty Sans Frontières. And Liberty Sans Frontières was set up explicitly in order to challenge so-called third worldism within the development sector. So third worldism was a sort of a post-colonial demand for global economic redistribution um, and was premised on the idea that the wealth of Europe, as uh, Franz Fanon put it, was stolen from the former colonies and that Europe therefore owed something to those who had been colonised and owed to them a form of redistribution to try to bring about a more equal economic arrangement. So, Liberty Sans Frontières set itself explicitly against this idea of global economic redistribution, and they really went on the attack against post-colonial demands for this new international economic order, and more than that, against any form of structuralist account of global economic inequality. And they argued that any talk about the organisation of the international economy or the sort of forms of exploitation and domination that still characterised the economy in the wake of formal colonialism, that focusing on the, those things was simply letting the political leaders of post-colonial states off the hook for the problems of their own societies. So Liberty Sans Frontières organised a conference where they invited a guy called uh, Lord Peter Bauer, who was the main neoliberal development theorist and very... Uh, the greatest sort of neoliberal opponent of um, development aid and of forms of redistribution. Um, And Bauer made an argument as he was wont to do about how colonialism had actually been a force for improvement and had benefited former colonies. And he made an argument against what he called um, European or colonial guilt. And this was an argument that was taken up very strongly by Medicine Sans Frontier, and by uh, various human rights defenders of the time that, in fact, Europe had nothing to be guilty for, that the wounds of uh, former, former colonies were largely self-imposed. And this served to, in fact, legitimise and justify new forms of European intervention and also to discredit the demands for international economic redistribution that were being made um, by people from former colonies in that period.
0: Mm. I'm thinking about also one other element that relates to, I guess, the role of an NGO. Um, Maybe I'll put it in two separate uh, questions. So the first one, um, in terms of NGOs and their focus, and you've just mentioned there that they've kind of, a lot of them would have um, stepped away from highlighting that structural inequality that is based on the economy. And there are so many human rights issues relating to modern day slavery, for example, which is still um, such a, a big... issue but there are often and there have been a number of human rights groups who have really um, narrowed in on issues that are I guess more of a socially focused um, area and so they would often look at maybe um, war-torn conflict zones and uh, the people civilians who are caught in the crossfire of those um, conflicts I guess in Syria for example and would focus on that kind of area of human rights. um, is is it really an either or in terms of how um, NGOs could approach this issue or have they kind of slid into um, an either or approach because of the language of neoliberalism that kind of has really taken over um, human rights?
1: Look, I'm making a specific historical argument about a particular period and a particular form of development of human rights politics, really, from the late 40s up to the 80s, so up to really the fall of the Berlin Wall. So it's an attempt to understand the development of a politics of human rights that afterwards became quite hegemonic. Um, And even in the period that I'm looking at, the language of human rights changed quite dramatically. So I'm not trying to argue that there's only one form of human rights. Um, But you mention human rights of people in war, and I think this has been a real... sort of important area that human rights ngos have focused on more recently but we need to remember that also many of these major human rights organizations have also called for various forms of war and so-called humanitarian interventions throughout the world and that's also part of the story that i'm telling here and part of what the neoliberals saw as beneficial in the idea of human rights, that they saw it as a language which would legitimise forms of intervention across the world to support liberal regimes. So I think that there are numerous contradictions. And what I guess I'm interested in is whether or not it's possible for human rights organisations today to break with this neoliberal heritage. There's certainly signs that many of these organisations are focusing far more than they did in the period that I looked at on questions of social and economic rights and even questions of economic inequality. But I think that Something more will be needed if we're going to really break with neoliberalism, which is a break with the kind of moral order that underpins it and a break with the idea that civil societies or market societies are somehow models of peace and mutually beneficial relations that need to be protected from politics.
0: Yes, exactly. And um, and part of the elements of neoliberalism that you've highlighted in this book are around reducing regulation of financial industries and reducing the role of government and its role in providing welfare to society. And I was just interested in the idea of philanthropy and whether that is an element or could be an element of understanding in in this situation of neoliberalism because there's a lot of debate nowadays around philanthropy and whether we should be reliant upon private, usually wealthy but not always, donors who are kind of stepping in to fill a need that uh, the government is not acting in. Does philanthropy or have you considered the role of philanthropy and how that might fit into the picture of neoliberalism and uh, human rights?
1: Look, it's not something that I write about specifically in the book, and it's certainly something that has taken off in an extraordinary way in the period, sort of after the period that I look at. But it's certainly something that I think is quite disturbing, that we have private individuals who are able to exert enormous, enormous influence on what the priorities should be, whether they're for global development or health or environmental protection, simply by virtue of the fact that they have astronomical amounts of wealth, wealth that far exceeds that of numerous countries combined. So I think that this kind of move to philanthropy is part of the same dynamic that I'm looking at, which is a real valorisation of private power at the expense of political and public power, uh, and also a real belief that massive private power does not need to be subjected to any kind of democratic constraint or oversight. So I think for my part that that's really the absolutely the wrong way to go that we should not be allowing extremely rich individuals to set the agenda for global humanity.
0: Mm, yeah, it certainly is very concerning. Um, to close out this discussion, I just wanted to ask your thoughts uh, on this. A lot of uh, commentators have been predicting the demise of neoliberalism and the, that it's on its last breath Um some people have even said that it's dead. Uh, Given that your um, book has really highlighted that it's not just um, an economic doctrine, that it is really ingrained within society in a number of ways, and certainly um, intertwined with human rights nowadays, what's your view on those uh, claims that neoliberalism is on its last legs, it's almost over and or it's already finished?
1: Look, I think that a lot of the question of how we answer that depends on how we define neoliberalism and i think often claims about the end of neoliberalism rely on an idea that neoliberalism is simply about free markets laissez faire etc and one of the things that i think i show in the book is just how much throughout its sort of early history neoliberal thinkers were committed to conservative ideas the extent to which they espoused outright racist ideas about um, hierarchies and also the fact that um, they were at many points quite comfortable with authoritarianism. So unfortunately the consequence of that is that neither the rise of racism or authoritarianism are sufficient to say that we've broken with neoliberalism. What I do think we have broken with, though, is a belief in the promises of neoliberalism. So I think that there are very few people nowadays who really believe that more austerity or more liberal reform is going to lead to a better life, either a better economic life for them, let alone a, a world of peace and mutually beneficial social relations. So I think that the promise of neoliberalism has certainly worn out. And the question will be whether it's possible to replace it with something that is about creating a more equal and a better world rather than one which is a sort of move towards forms of brute violence, authoritarianism and new forms of hierarchy.
0: Mm, Absolutely. Jess, it's been so fascinating to speak with you and I've got to say the book is just so beautifully written. It's very uh, compelling to read and it's also really um, fascinating and obviously well-researched. So congratulations on such an original piece of work and um, I hope to keep an eye on what you do in the future and thanks so much for sharing your thoughts with us today.
1: Thanks so much, Amy, and thanks for having me on the show.
0: It's my pleasure. I've been speaking with Associate Professor Jessica White. She has written a book called The Morals of the Market, Human Rights and the Rise of Neoliberalism, which has been released by Verso Books, V-E-R-S-O, and that is a UK-based publishing house that uh, you may be familiar with. And they publish some really great and quite groundbreaking texts of which Jessica's Definitely is. Uh, Jessica is a Scientia Fellow and she's also, um, as I said, an Associate Professor in the School of Humanities and Languages in Philosophy and is also um, associated with the School of Law at the University of New South Wales. I'm Amy Mullins and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.